Lost in Science for another week. You are listening to Claire, Chris and Stu and we have half an hour of science on your radio ready to go. So this week on the show we have two stories. Chris, what do you have for us? Well, Claire, I am looking at an article. It's a study that I stumbled across. Uh, Somehow I missed it when it was first published in 2013, which is a long time ago. Uh, even though it did apparently get a lot of media attention. But um, look, it's right. an interesting study about trying to find evidence of time travellers. Have there been time travellers? Have they left any any marks on the internet, I say? Chris, have you have you talked about uh, is there any evidence of time travellers before? Didn't you didn't you do a call out a couple of years ago yeah, asking you did. asking if there that. are any time yeah, travellers? Yeah. Get in touch. We haven't heard from anyone, have we? No, I occasionally get the odd, the odd message saying, "I think time travel is possible," or "I think it's not possible." But no one is actually showing they themselves are a time traveller. But this is an interesting study that tried to find examples of maybe sort of foreknowledge. So it's also like a premonition test, I suppose, of you know, time travellers presumably would know future events. Um, so I had a bit of a look into that, and I came to some interesting conclusions, and I thought I could examine, look into it a bit deeper, but it also, though, it kind of went in a funny direction because it revealed something, I think, about how science is received or uh, interpreted by the scientific community and the community at large. So, um, yeah, I don't know. There's some interesting things. I managed to connect it to some work that's come out lately. Well, it sounds like while you were going down your own uh wormhole on the internet um you found some interesting information about time travel there hmm or maybe not i don't know we'll have to stay tuned to find out um and Stu, what do you have for us today uh look i was uh, i was doing some reading in the last little while about research that's going on around the world and one of the things that i do think is is quite amazing about scientific research is how things have functions which later become relevant so people find out things about Mm. how things work and you know they might they might be using it for one thing and then later on someone comes along and goes hey that seems to be related to what i'm working on and they'll try it out and they'll find out something new based on something which is you know yeah been discovered many many years before so it's an interesting development in the area of tuberculosis and tuberculosis is not really a disease that we probably think about all that much uh in in the 21st century but in the past it was a major killer uh, and it was a huge sort of scientific effort to find ways to treat it and prevent it uh, in the population Um, but some of those um, treatments are actually finding new life in uh, in areas which have nothing to do with tuberculosis so I'm going to talk a little bit about how that old research is being repurposed in new ways. I love a bit of retranslated research. That sounds fascinating. Uh, Stay tuned for those two stories and on with the show.
Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am talking about an attempt to find time travellers by looking for their predictions on the internet. Your first thought may be, this is kind of a lazy way to try and discover time travel. <laughs> and so lazy, in fact, that as, as you pointed out, uh, Stu and Claire, I did it myself a few years ago. I tried to start what I called the World Time Machine Project. The idea being that um, time travellers could step forward and say, hey, we exist, and then we would know they exist and give us incentive to actually find, or give us a clue of how to find how to build a time machine. There was never really any, anything in it for the time travellers, though, so yeah, that could be one of the reasons why they didn't respond well that you know they're, they're probably too busy you know down at the racetrack uh you know using their their foreknowledge to uh make millions of dollars surely well I will, I'll, I'll actually i'll touch on that in a little bit yes yeah and was were you the only one that did that or was there was it stephen, stephen hawking, hawking did or... it, yeah he basically yeah, he, okay. he held a party where he didn't basically announce that it was going to be held until after the party was held. So the idea was that in time travels would know already that the party was on and they would turn up. It was just a stunt. Uh-huh. But look, that, what this is, there's a serious side to this, I suppose, because people do wonder whether time travel is possible. And one of the questions that comes up if people say it is possible is, then where are all the time travellers? Because surely if time travel to the past was possible, then wouldn't they be all over the place? From what I've seen uh, in several documentaries, uh, it's very difficult <laughs> to get into the quantum realm which is how it's possible, <laughs> according to Ant-Man. Uh, I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't believe what Ant-Man says. I mean, <laughs> he's an Ant-Man. <laughs> Come on. No, they, they actually, though, you, you kind of got a point there, Stu, in that the way that time travel works perhaps may be preventing this. So there are actually, in physics, there are a few kind of concepts, kind of loopholes, sometimes literally in the laws of physics, that could allow you to build time machines. But pretty much for all of them, whether they're possible or not, and so far they're unproven, but whether they're possible or not, Pretty much all of them, you would not be able to go back to before the time machine was built. That may not be. There may be some undiscovered solution that allows you to do that. I don't know. But yeah, just so far, it's not that surprising we wouldn't see any time travelers until someone has actually built a time machine. So basically... Oh, right. Basically, you need an arrival point and that is where someone could come from the future to that point is... Yeah, so look, as soon as you build a time machine, you're playing it's a big box, as soon as you build it and switch it on, your future self is going to step out and go, hey, don't switch on the time machine. Ah, damn it, too late. This is the idea of saying, okay, well, look, maybe there there is some sort of way of doing it. Maybe there are some sort of, there is some sort of time machine out there. Look, at least we can try and find, are there any time travellers out there? Um, now, there have been people, of course, on the internet who have claimed to be time travellers. There was this bloke called John Titor, who was a big thing back in the early years of this century. I love how you say, obviously, there are people on the internet. I mean, obviously there are, yeah. but I I mean, I haven't come across well, them. Well, this guy, this guy claimed to be from the future. Um, and he had travelled back to, I think, the 1970s to get a particular kind of computer that was needed to prevent um, a nuclear war or something like that. And then he stopped over in the early 21st century just to have a bit of a chat <laughs> on news groups. And um, he made a whole bunch of predictions that people got excited about, but they didn't come true. Um, but then, of course, he blamed alternative timelines. So, hey, you know, happened in my timeline. Not very convincing. That is like, that's a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah. As I said, there was actually a study that tried to look a bit more systematic attempt. This is in 2013. Robert J. Naramov and Teresa Wilson, They what they did, they looked for, they searched the internet for key terms that would indicate prior knowledge. What they did is they chose certain events that were kind of like terms that came out of certain events that would have been very rare 
before that those events. And so they looked if anyone had mentioned them. And the two things they chose was um, Pope Francis, who was papacized, papalized, um, paped, poped in 2013, um, and Comet Ison, that's I-S-O-N, which arrived, it was discovered in 2012. So they looked for mentions, including on hashtags, on Facebook, on Twitter, um, on Google+, as well as through various Google searches. The fact that you may not have heard of this study probably indicates they didn't find anything. But this didn't stop the paper getting a lot of media attention. It was kind of one of those <laughs> interesting stories of the week, particularly because it combined things like, you know, as as one of the researchers pointed out, it combined time travel with the internet, which are popular topics, and chuck in a bit of religion as well. You know, it had all the, the elements that might get the public interested. But the paper itself that they wrote was never published. They had a big, long kind of quest to try and get someone to publish it, but they could not get any journals to take them seriously. Right. And Neremov even wrote an article about his attempt to get it published. Um, and he was kind of... Because the paper was um, was actually one of the most engaged with papers of 2013. It kind of hit like up there for all the kind of media engagement, people reading the paper, but and yet it wasn't published. So it's kind of, I suppose that's suggesting that science is a very serious, rigorous topic and we don't take these frivolous things. We only want real, reliable science rather than something that just appeals to the to the public. Is that the kind of the message you would get? Yes, it certainly sounds good, like it. Good, yeah. Um, I should point out, yeah, so this is, I'm going to say earlier about the, the racetrack comment because one of the, the things one of the referees said was along the lines of looking for like pre-knowledge of events is something that they do in the stock market all the time, for instance. But that's usually an indication of insider trading rather than time travel. And similarly, someone at the racetrack was somehow mysteriously knew who was going to win. I don't think you would assume they're a time traveler. You'd probably assume they had some sort of uh, connection. So just foreknowledge itself is not sufficient. You have to have this kind of very specific non-organized crime level of, of foreknowledge. <laughs> I asked that question about how rigorous science is because I came across another interesting paper that uh, this is something that was recently published in the journal Science. This is uh, Marta Sarah Garcia and Yuri Nisi from San Diego in the United States. They looked at um, papers, uh, citations of papers, and how that correlated with whether the research had been replicated. So this is because there's been a bit of attention in recent years on what they call the reproducibility crisis. Um, about, you know, there's all these big studies come out, um, but when you try to reproduce the experiment, you can't replicate the findings. There have been three major studies examining this question uh, in psychology, uh, in economics, and in, well, looking at papers published in the journals Nature and Science themselves, so kind of a general science journals. And what these researchers found was that papers that had been, that were not replicated or that could not be replicated were cited a lot more than those that could be replicated. Mm. And when I say a lot more, I mean like 153 times more. Whoa. This is not a small effect. And it doesn't even seem to change if it's, you know, it becomes knowledge that the, the paper has not been replicated. They are still cited, which is kind of a weird finding. And it kind of makes you worry about I suppose, how rigorous the researchers are being, or even how rigorous the journals are in publishing these papers in the first place. Now, these in this study, they posited that perhaps more interesting research gets more attention and is more likely to be published, even if it can't be replicated. So if someone pu publishes something really interesting or writes a paper on something really interesting, then, yeah, you're going to want to publish it 
regardless of whether it looks like it's good quality research or true or not. But it doesn't really answer the question of why a time travel paper wasn't published, because that was clearly something that was interesting. Uh, I mean, generated yeah. a lot of interest, yet somehow was not passing the, the barrier to, to publication. Uh, so a bit of a shame there. But um, so I thought I would give it a bit of a, a bit more love. And I thought I would do so by updating the research. Ah. See, because like, okay, Pope Francis, I admit, he's a fairly big deal. He's very popular, well known. But we look at Comet Ison. Would someone say, go to the effort of traveling back in time to tell people on Twitter <laughs> that there was this Comet Ison coming? I, I mean, it, it, it doesn't make much sense. I mean, either of those choices seem like it's, it's a pretty niche section of society that's going to choose to to go on like you say yeah. go on twitter because they were hampered because they were trying to find things them. that would not have been mentioned beforehand and yeah they chose really well like they looked at the hashtag comet ison and they found no mentions of it anywhere before or after it was discovered so yeah so, it was, so uh, they chose they chose something that literally no one was talking about even after everybody knew it happened well they just said that um that that was an unreliable their methods of looking for these these um content because they themselves had used that hashtag and they thought it was actually more of a big deal than the internet seemed to we don't have to worry about that because we happen to have a new but much more notable term that we can use <gasps> is it COVID 19 COVID. yes COVID 19 or just COVID. So, yeah, I thought that's going to be a really easy one. It's a word that really was not used much before this year, or like 2020, I mean. So I tried to replicate their research as much as I could. Um, I looked at Twitter and Facebook again. I looked at Google searches. Sadly, not Google+, Plus because I believe that's no longer with us. Uh, but I also looked at Reddit, because that's become, you know, probably more of a big thing than it was in 2013. Now, there were some, like, odd little uses, like there's a video cable called COVID, but... <laughs> yeah. But so there's only a handful of search results came up and they're pretty easy to filter out that no, there was no one warning of look out for COVID-19 in 2020 and 2021. There was no evidence of time travellers using this term at all, sadly. The closest... Are you... Um, I hope you're going to submit to journals now, I should now, do, shouldn't Chris? I? I should, I should write that yeah. up. Um, look, the best closest yeah. I could find was an odd little news story that came out, I think in March last year, about a mystery car parked at Adelaide Airport that had the number plate COVID-19. That at the time, um, airport workers were claiming <laughs> had been parked there for months and so clearly would have predated the use of the term. But um, since then, I think footage has come out of it being driven earlier that month and so it perhaps had not been there quite as long as they had said, but um, we still like to think that there was some person in Adelaide who saw it all coming and snapped up the number plate. And maybe there's a time traveler in Adelaide who uh, tried to warn the world through the the, the mechanism of personalized number <laughs> plates. Not the most reliable communication mechanism, but I guess it's one that could last. It will perhaps outlast the internet <laughs> that the future people will dig up this number plate and they will know what happened <laughs> during the pandemic. <laughs>
We have spent more than a year concerned with a particular infection and scientists around the world worked faster than ever before to find a vaccine for it and they've actually come up with several effective versions of a vaccine, uh, which is pretty astounding. Now, historically, various diseases have caused widespread illness and mortality, and many of them are largely forgotten now, in no small part because we have developed ways to prevent or treat them. Everyone has probably heard of tuberculosis or TB. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, now, if we, you know, <laughs> you, you've heard of it, but it's not something which, you know, which you'd probably be particularly concerned about. Not in this country, at least. I mean, there is, um, it is a big health issue in other parts of the world. It is, it is. And it, it seems to be, yeah. uh, it's a very geographically uh, important uh, illness. Also kind of greatly affected by things like um, antibiotic resistance. Um, yeah, there are resistant strains of tuberculosis emerging that um, are quite concerns. So it could perhaps make a big resurgence. Potentially. But if we travel back around 200 years or a little bit more, it was an illness that caused the death of over 1% of the English population every year. So at the time, yeah, at the time in the 18th century, this represented a quarter of deaths from all causes. Consumption was the common term for it because people lost a huge amount of weight very quickly when they got ill. So around the world in 1800, about 50 million people were infected with the disease and about 7 million people globally died from tuberculosis every year. So the illness itself can infect any part of the human body, but it's when it infects the lungs, it is at its most dangerous. But a French doctor called René Lanet first proposed that all of these infections that people were, that doctors were seeing all through the body was actually a single infection. It was his concept that this was all being caused by the one thing. And in 1816, he personally invented the stethoscope, uh, you know, international symbol of I'm a doctor. Yeah. (laughs) So he could listen to the sounds of a patient's breathing, which had previously been done prior to 1816, by putting your ear up against their chest and seeing what you could hear. So obviously that was a huge step forward for uh, medical science, just inventing the stethoscope. But this was all leading to the discovery of the cause of the disease, which was found to be a kind of actinobacteria called Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is where the disease gets its name, its modern name. Uh, It actually causes tubercules in infected tissue which are little tiny lumps little tiny tubers in inside Mm. the tissue of the body now being a bacterial infection it can be treated using antibiotics but back in the 1800s they weren't around Uh, it wasn't until the 20th century that we actually discovered antibiotics and they became widely used over the course of the 20th century but as chris alluded to before there is a problem with antibiotic resistance they have to use multiple antibiotic treatments to actually have uh, an effect and it can take months to fully eradicate the bacteria because of that toughness and it's also a particularly tough bacteria it has a very uh, sort of defensive uh, structure which makes it difficult to get antibiotics into the bacteria to actually kill it off but in 1921 so 100 years ago uh, a pair of french immunologists discovered a strain of similar bacteria in cows which is called mycobacterium bovis you know, from bovine, meaning cows, Sure. uh, figured out that it could be used in a weakened form as a vaccine against TB. So 
all the way back to the smallpox uh, vaccine. Similar concept, just happens to also be from cows. But this is, you know, they they discovered this uh, bacteria. They found a weakened form of it they could use against tuberculosis. Now, currently, the Bacillus carmegarin, or BCG, vaccine is given to about 100 million high-risk children every year and it's also given to adults in high exposure occupations such as medical staff in high-risk countries because as uh, Chris mentioned before it is a problem in some places in the world even now. So the BCG vaccine uses a weakened form of the related bacteria and it shows actually has shown variable effects in reducing tuberculosis infection. It does slow the onset of the disease if it's contracted if you've had this vaccine but the the effects are variable apparently geographically so the closer to the equator you get the less impact the vaccine has which is quite unusual Hmm. but as with most vaccines it primes the immune system of the patient so if they're exposed to the more dangerous tuberculosis causing bacteria their immune system is ready to fight it off immediately which prevents or reduces the infection more recently further research into the bcg vaccine has led to some interesting observations that the same bacteria may be able to help with a range of other non-contagious diseases and conditions so tb is actually contagious Uh, illness it gets spread from person to person Um, but research more recently has shown bcg vaccines being used in other ways the use of the vaccine has been written up in medical journals over the years and the noted effect of it actually improving immune responses led in the 1980s to the bcg vaccine being used in bladder cancer patients who were immunocompromised so people who through their other treatments were getting reduced immune responses, were given the BCG vaccine and they had better immune responses as a result. So the BCG vaccine was actually helping their immune system, which was being bashed around by the other cancer treatments they were getting. Unlike a lot of things people say you can boost your immune system, the BCG vaccine actually does do that. A systematic review published in 2016 in BMJ or the British Medical Journal showed consistent immune responses in patients who received the BCG vaccine for a variety of illnesses, not just for tuberculosis. It was even trialled in the early days of COVID-19 as a possible preventative treatment. Results were pretty variable and obviously more effective specific vaccines became available really quickly. But one area it has shown to have promising effects is in several autoimmune disorders, including one which is the most common cause of type 1 diabetes. In type 1 diabetes, the immune system attacks the cells in the pancreas, which make insulin, which is the substance that allows the body to regulate blood sugar and glucose use in the other tissues. A researcher called Denise Faustman at Harvard Medical School has been studying the effects of the BCG vaccine on type 1 diabetes since the 1990s. Do they have any understanding as to why that is? Well, it does seem to boost some of the functions of the immune system. So it promotes production of particular chemicals which aid in the identification and you know destruction of pathogenic organisms. Why that's working in the autoimmune response is, mm. is still being investigated, but the effect of it is something that they've measured. So the recent research is looking at long-term trends. So in many cases, the effects of the BCG vaccine seem to continue for a long period, up to 10 years. Although 
obviously that's hard to separate from other factors. So these patients are still getting treatment in other ways, but the reduction in the autoimmune response against the pancreatic cells in these diabetes patients improves continuously over that 10 year period that they've been measuring it for. So it does seem that the effect of the BCG vaccine is more than just priming the immune system for a specific pathogen. It may have more widespread effects on the immune system generally, uh, and it shows promise in other areas as well. There's other research uh, which has shown um, positive results in asthma, uh, eczema, and possibly even in multiple sclerosis patients, which is um, wow. to do with an autoimmune response in the brain and nervous system. So um, it's a promising area of research problems, which like tuberculosis a century ago, uh, have few effective treatments available. So it is something that may become more important uh, in the future. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked, locked in, in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.